I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there with got you, got you. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Got you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once a month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. One of the things I'm always in search of are who are the people and who are the resources that provide the most wisdom, the most knowledge. Uh, There's so much out there today, right? And one of those people is my guest today, and that's David Senra. And David is the host of Founders Podcast. And this this truly is one of the best podcasts there are out there. And I don't say that lightly. It really is. It's one of the podcasts I listen to most frequently. It's really remarkable. And what David does is he reads at least a biography a week. He's done over 250 now over the past six years. He's read over 100,000 pages. And he goes and deep dives that book, that founder, and breaks down their mentality, their mindset, the obstacles they had to overcome. And he ties these different patterns. I mean, on an episode, he'll talk about the commonalities between John D. Rockefeller, Jay-Z, Michael Jordan, Coco Chanel, and he shows you the persistent patterns they use again and again, the essential tools and mindsets they've used. This really is an amazing episode, jam-packed with interesting stories and incredible actionable advice. So if you're interested in learning from one of the people that I think is the best at distilling the wisdom throughout history, then you are going to love this episode with David Senra. And if you're interested, check out his podcast, which will be linked up in the show notes, and it's the Founders Podcast. Enjoy, guys. I am thrilled to tell you about my new online personal growth course called You Unleashed. You Unleashed is for those people looking to burst through the walls of their previous limitations and fears and tap into their greater potential, or what I call your You Unleashed self. This course is a culmination of the best things I've learned being a professional athlete, entrepreneur, investor, and spending thousands of hours sitting down with world-class performers on this podcast to uncover what you need to raise your potential to a new level. This course is going to give you clarity of what an extraordinary life looks like and who you need to become in order to achieve that life. Now, I'll provide you with the mindsets, behaviors, and actions you need to bring out your unleashed self. You'll uncover your deeper why, your values, and your life philosophy that will guide you moving forward. So the question is, why haven't you unleashed your full potential yet? You only get one shot at this life, so what are you waiting for? You're meant to become extraordinary. We all are. So if you're interested in stepping into your potential and cultivating the type of life you've been dreaming of, then check out my You Unleashed course by clicking below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed and because you listen to the podcast i'm giving you 50 percent off the entire course for a limited time by using code wgyt that's what got you there.com forward slash you dash unleashed and use code wgyt for 50 percent off david one of the things i'm really interested in is what is your locked screen on your phone <laughs> you want me to show it to you here, I know most people won't see it, but you see, you can see it, right? Yeah, I can see it. 
So that's Ernest Shackleton looking like death. <laughs> He's uh, got like ice and snow in his beard. Looks like he hasn't slept in weeks. But he also has like this very interesting, this is probably the most famous picture of Ernest Shackleton. It's probably the one that, that pops up first if you Google image search him. But he also looks strangely content. And uh, I like to read about, not only do I like to read obviously about people that start companies, but I like to read about explorers. Uh, there's, in fact, there's a book that I'm going to read for the podcast soon called Sailing Alone. I think it's called like Sailing Around the World Alone, which I think is like a great metaphor for anybody that's doing something difficult, right? So when I read Shackleton's, uh, the account of Shackleton's voyage, um, I think it's Alfred Lansing is, is, the, uh, is the author. The, the book is called Endurance. But I've come across this idea of having a personal or family motto a couple times in the books. And one example is Stanley, the creator of, of Marvel, right? His is Latin. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but it's the name of his autobiography. And it means ever upwards, right? And he just would like yell it out as like a rallying cry. Teddy Roosevelt, who's one of, become one of my personal heroes because I've read now three or four books on him for the podcast. He took his dad's personal motto, which was get action. Like that's an entire story in two, like an entire operating system for your life in two words, get action. And uh, so what I liked about um, Shackleton is his family motto was by endurance, we conquer. And so the reason that is on my phone is because it's a reminder to like, to optimize for endurance, to optimize for the long time, long term. And that if you just a, a huge part of being quote unquote successful in life, let me you steal an idea from that I learned from Steve Jobs, where he said, I'm convinced about half of what separates the successful entrepreneurs from the unsuccessful ones is just pure perseverance, right? So Steve Jobs is telling you right off the rip, half of it is just not quitting. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, I read his autobiography. He said the same thing. He goes, 80% of life is just showing up. I believe that. That is a literal, like a line from his autobiography that's been seared in my brain. And so by me, just every time I look at my phone, which we probably do, what, 100, 200 times a day, who knows? It's like, oh, okay. He didn't give up. He went through a hell of a lot worse things than you have to deal with in your life. You're not doing anything like, you know, the difference between the, the impact of his decision is literally the life and death of him and his entire crew, which if people know the story, he wind up going through this treacherous uh, endeavor and every single person that he under his leadership survived and in environments that humans are not meant to survive in. Um, so I just love the idea. It's like by endurance, we conquer. And so I also repeat that to my son is too young, but I tell my daughter that all over and over again, by endurance, we conquer, by endurance, we conquer, like just don't give up. So you've got that on your phone as your lock screen. I'm wondering what else you're surrounding yourself with, right? Like what different inputs are you trying to bring into your brain throughout the day? Okay. So let's go to, you open it and then you have, <laughs> and we can actually seg use this as a segue to talk about, cause I know you, uh, we wanted to talk about Michael Jordan and the, the two podcasts they've done on him. But I have a, it's a black screen, right? And it's actually a quote. It's a screenshot from the Netflix documentary, uh, The Last Dance. And it says, a guy that was totally focused on one thing and one thing only. Hmm. And so when Michael was in his playing career, it's like, I'm not focused on, I'm focused on being the best, single best basketball player I can be. And I'm willing to put all of my life energy into the achievement of that goal. And so I'm not trying to play in the NBA. But I am. I do have like things that are important to me. Obviously, trying to build Founders Podcast to be the best podcast in the world. If you want to study about and you want to learn about the history of entrepreneurship, like that is my main goal. It's not the biggest podcast. 
It's, I want it to be the best. It's like, okay, this is a resource. This is a tool. It'll be beneficial to your career. And so that is my focus. It's like, I'm not trying to do a million things. I'm literally saying, like, I'm going to read this again. A guy, and this could be a girl too, a person that was totally focused on one thing and one thing only. So it's a way to say, okay, I like that idea, Michael, that I learned from reading his like almost 700 page biography. And I'm going to apply that to my work. Yeah. It's, it's funny. The first time you and I ever talked, I got off the phone. I literally wrote one word next to your name and it was just focus. And I was like, David is freaking focused and just laser-like focused. And, and I love how you bring up Jordan there and Jordan's laser-like focus. You can find the exact same thing, basically word for word, what Kobe said. Same thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like he, he got that early in his head. I want to be Mr. Universe. And it's just like, wow, these people are laser-like focused on that. I, I'm wondering, have you come across different founders who stumbled their way into that type of focus? I don't know stumbled. Let me think. I'm asking because w when I talk about focus with different people um, off the podcast, a lot of the questions come around, well, I don't, I, I'm not as focused as Kobe Bryant at 13. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so they might be in their early 30s and they're like, what if I don't have that laser-like focus? Is this just something that'll never happen for me? Or at some point, can I discover what that one thing I'm going after could be. Yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't use the word stumbled into. These people are extremely intentional. Like they're, I mean, it's very, I, I'm excited that like me and you have a chance to, to record our conversation now because I really think we're attacking the same idea from two different angles, right? Like you get to actually speak to high performing people, right? And I'm just reading books about high performing people. So most of the people I study are dead. You get to actually talk and like bounce ideas off them, right? But fundamentally we're after the same thing. It's like, what is it about these people yeah and make them so different. And I would say it's like, they may not know right away, like very few people, like the, the Kobe example, right? Kobe knew at 13, he's like, I'm going to dedicate my life to trying to be the best basketball player in the world, right? And he's extremely fortunate. Yeah. Um, Steve Jobs, I would say, knew at a young age because he's messing around trying to build products. And from the very beginning, like you he started Apple in the, in the 1970s. That I've read, you know what, I think I've done 13 different episodes on, on Steve Jobs at this point. His focus was always... I'm going to make insanely great products, right? That's his main focus. And then he learned along the way because he studied from history, like the, the greatest thinkers and, and entrepreneurs in history, some of which he was able to meet because he just happened to be in Silicon Valley at the right time. Uh, he was at the right place at the right time. But then he realized, oh, to, to fulfill my main focus, which is making an insanely great product, I have to make an insanely great, I have to learn how to make an insanely great company. And he talks about in his biographies, like, I didn't know how to do that. So I sought out the people that had achieved that goal. People like the founders of HP, people like the founder of Intel winds up being like his, almost like his godfather. It's like his big brother a little bit, uh, Bob Noyce. So I don't think it's a matter of, I, I, I do think for some people it takes, you know, decades of experimenting. And, and I think a, a key to that is like finding out things that you don't like to do yeah. is very helpful, right? You kind of like work backwards, like, oh, I don't like that, or I don't like that person, or whatever the case is, or I didn't like that job or that that company is a way to go to figure out what you truly do love. But I think they're all extremely, there's a line I say on the podcast over and over again that like, I'm almost like you're brainwashing yourself because I'm only studying people that live lives that are so remarkable that somebody wrote a book about it. Hmm. Like that is insane. If you really think about it. like how many people have lived throughout the entire human history that lived a life so remarkable that somebody wrote a book about it. And so as you're, you know, my day job, my, my entire focus is just having one-sided conversations with these people, right? They're dead. I can't, like you have to go, the only place to find that is in like this information is in these books. 
And so something I realized is like, these people are so brilliant and so efficient, you can't believe it. It's like they're another species of human. You digest, you spend 15, like I just finished, I just uh, reread the biography of John D. Rockefeller, Titan, yeah. which I know you've read too. We talked about this, right? Yeah, the podcast was great, by the way. I'll, that'll be linked up. Thank you. So I spent like 40 or 50 hours really like sitting, that book is like seven, 700 pages, but I really sat with it. And like, I didn't just read a paragraph and skip on to the next one. I was like, okay, what is happening here? And that's why for that episode, I really focus. It's like, I'm not interested when he's the richest man in the world and he's donating his money. I'm very happy he did that. But I want to know like the young Johnny Rockefeller, the 25 year old that somehow moved himself into a position where he was, if not the largest oil refiner in the world, 25, one of the largest, right? And so um, when you when you spend 40 or 50 hours, it's like, oh, I know this person now. Like, I know how they think. Um, and what I said in there is like, I don't I think there's a line in the book that I don't think I include in the podcast, but somebody, I think it was one of his partners, was saying that like, you don't realize how unusual Rockefeller was. And he said, this is like a once in a 500 year person. And that is what I'm ex exposing yourself to those ideas. It just, you just realize, okay, I don't need to go out and build the next uh, standard oil, but I can use ideas uh, that Rockefeller used in building his business that are, that are helpful in my own work. Um, and I just think it's beneficial to like having your mind stretched by what is actually, what is the, the end, like what are the extremes of human possibility? I guess is the way to think about it. Yeah, you said something a minute ago, um, reading these biographies that like what they did, what they accomplished, you almost can't believe it. What I actually think you do an exceptional job at is you take some of the most remarkable people throughout history, but you make the listener believe that it's possible because of what that person accomplished. And so what I mean by this is in your episode with Jay-Z on the Jay-Z book Decoded, which was remarkable, one of the best, I said this again and again, one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to in my life. You have this line, and I don't know if this was Jay-Z's line, where he basically goes from like a crack dealing poor kid to living in a hundred million dollar house. He's like, he did that in one lifetime. And I think what yeah. you do a great job is, is you consistently show these persistent patterns that of, and mindsets that get used again and again. And so I'm wondering for you, if you're looking at like those persistent mindsets that are just, everyone uses them again and again, which are the ones you're laser focused on? So it is funny because I think a lot of people have the misconception just like oh i need to learn like 25 important concepts or there's all this stuff i have to hold my brain and what i'm learning over and over again they might be different but everybody that i've read about they have a handful of ideas and principles that are important to them and they just repeat and pound away at them forever you get and this is the perfect example of this is like if you read a biography of jeff bezos people that worked in the early days of amazon they tell you it's like jeff just repeats himself all over and over again so much so that his maxims and these principles that he espouses, they call them Jeffisms. And there's like, he wrote, he wrote some of them down. There might be five, six, maybe they extend to 10 as the more business, the more complex your business gets, but it's not, you don't have to remember a million things. And so I don't have like a, like one specific person I'm trying to co copy completely, but I do have ideas that I've seen over and over again. Like one, one thing that was most surprising um, about the history of entrepreneurship that is repeated over and over again is the importance of watching your cost. This goes all the way back to Andrew Carnegie, his partner, Henry Clay Frick, and they had a line. I did a three-part series on them. I don't remember if it was Carnegie that said this or Frick that said it, but this maxim is repeated over and over again. Estee Lauder uses it. It's gentlemen, watch your costs. And then 
that pops up over and over again. Like you read Warren Buffett shareholder letters and he always, he's always talking about, it. he's like the importance of having the lowest cost structure. The fact that even like the, the, how decentralized the, the eight, the headquarters of Berkshire is. He's like, we spend, and I think I can't remember if it was Buffett or Munger said this, like, listen, there is nobody that is our size that spends as little as we do on the operations of our business. You know, it's like 14 people at headquarters. I think they even break it down. It's like, you know, half of 1% or whatever the, the number, you know, the, that's how they, they communicate. Um, so, Watching your costs, making sure frugality. Like people think, oh, Steve Jobs, like you wouldn't think of him as being frugal. That's not true. Go and read the, there's a book called uh, Steve, I think it's Steve Jobs and the Next Big Thing. Um, it's in my archive. I think it's in the, the 70s, like ep- episode 70s or so, somewhere in there. But that book is really important because it's about the dozen years between when he got kicked out of Apple and then he returns, right? And so, the reason I, I recommend all entrepreneurs read that book is because that is bizarro Steve Jobs. You have one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest entrepreneurs ever lived. And that entire book, that 12 years is just him making one mistake after another mistake after another mistake. The only thing I would say that he didn't make a mistake on was him buying Pixar and willing to invest $50 million of his own money into Pixar before it even turned a profit, which is insane, right? Most investors would have bailed. But the reason I say that's important because he's ident- in that book, he's identifying where he's gone wrong. What, he, what did he do at Apple, at the very beginning of Apple, that was successful, that he didn't do it next? And he's like, we stopped watching the quarters. Um, and so one, one example of that that's pretty crazy is like out of the first 10 employees at Next, one of them was an interior designer for an office. Like there's a lot of different ways to build a company, but I don't think anybody would think, hey, you know what? First 10 people on, on my team is extremely important. Let me give 10% of that capacity to, to how the office the interior design of the offices um so frugality's in there watching your costs is in there uh a lot of this is you know we talked about persistence not giving up there's nobody i've read a book about where it's like oh i have this idea for a business i set it up and it took off like a rocket that doesn't exist ever there's there's no there's not nothing like that it's the opposite so i've read 250 biographies and autobiographies for the podcast so far if you could only read one and there's a ton of them that are great the only the one i would say you should read is James Dyson's autobiography. He's written two, right? This is the first one he wrote. It's very hard to find. They didn't print many copies of it. It's incredible. It's called Against the Odds, an autobiography by James Dyson. And the reason I tell other founders to read that book is because it is not, like, first of all, it's funny. Uh, He's got, like, it's actually an entertaining book. It's like 220 pages you could probably read in a weekend, but it is all about struggle and persistence. And the 14, I think it was 14 years between the idea is like, hey, I can make a better vacuum. That idea, ripping off like the bag from the Hoover vacuum, right? And then figuring out a way to produce it, to own it completely. He went through 5,127 prototypes. And so that book, there's a 14-year struggle. That is 90% of the book. And at the end, Dyson is still only for sale in Europe. It might only be for sale in the UK. And then he writes another autobiography 20 years later. And now that that business that he owns 100% of gives him a $30 billion net worth. And he's still at it. And he's in his 70s. He's like, I go to work every day. I love it. Yeah, I've got the the book right here. I thought it was exceptional. Um, because yeah, it's, well, because of the persistence, his his drive, his ability to keep going on. I'm wondering for you though, right? Like you, you said, whether it was 12 or 15 years in, like at what point do you give up on that? I think that's why I have Shackleton on my my lock screen. If it's the best idea you have and you feel your life is not going to complete, be complete unless you do it, the answer is never. So that's inner scorecard, right? 
one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It, like I've been working on founders for since two thousand sixteen. It's just now in the last like twelve months has really gotten a lot of attention. Really got to the point where like it's it's successful, has an audience, it's financially successful. But like there was, I went through an insane like there was years of just having a handful of people. The reason I obviously didn't quit too is because I had a, a handful of people that were really enthusiastic about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, and these are like really impressive people. If you find out who they actually are and I was able to email and talk to a bunch of them, I was like, oh, if these people like it. I just need to, and there's, there's millions of people just like them, right? They might be a small percentage of the overall human population. But if you, if you figure out, it's like how many people in the world uh, are connected to the internet, are interested in entrepreneurship and speak English, right? Millions, yeah. like 150 million. You know, and you don't need it. I have a subscription podcast. Like you get a million people, you'd have one of the most successful businesses of all time. So I'm not saying that that's going to be like a very easy task to do. Um, but it's, a, I'm also like, like eating your own cooking, I think is like the term. It's just like, I, there was plenty of times where I was like, man, no one gives a shit about this. Like I should just stop. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll keep reading the books, but I'm investing way too much time recording and editing and then trying to like make people aware of its existence. And it's just like, but then I was like, I don't have a better idea. And there's nothing I've ever done. Like I'm completely in love with what I'm doing and I'm completely obsessed with it. And at that point, it's just like, this is stupid. I, I, we talked about this when we were talking on the phone the other day. Like I remember the exact moment where I was like, I am not going to do anything else. I'm sitting in bed. I've been doing it for a while. I got, you know, uh, it's making a small amount of money, but like a lot of positive feedback. And I was rereading Paul Graham's ep, uh, essay is which is uh how to do what you love and i get to the end of epi- the, the essay and paul's you know a fantastic writer he's got really interesting thoughts and not only that like how many more people on that are alive right now have analyzed you know that many as many startups as paul graham has yeah. in his career right so he obviously knows what he's talking about and he's just a really gifted writer in a way that i'll never be and so much so that i got to the end i was like all right that's it i'm willing to go to my down to my last dollar if i have to but i'm gonna make this work um, and a lot of that is just being inspired by the story. So I hear from a lot of listeners, they're like, they're like, oh, I find these stories comforting, right? And I know exactly what they mean because I feel the same way. I feel reading biographies and autobiographies to be extremely comforting because you're constantly exposed to some of the smartest, most formidable people to ever live, dealing with struggle, making mistakes, having regrets. And you're like, oh, if like that if they're going through that, then why would I expect to just coast through life and and have no troubles? Like that just doesn't exist. It's hilarious. So I was on the phone with my, one of my good friends yesterday, kind of talking about this. So like rough rough week for me, right? Where like I needed some of that comfort. It's it's hilarious. So I literally listened to your Phil Knight episode again and your James Dyson one, two of the most astonishing entrepreneurs throughout time, and what they had to do again and again. And yeah, it was hilarious because it brought like this great comfort to me of like yeah. Like head up, let's go, problem to be solved. And it was just like, damn, man, that was like really inspiring. Um, so it, it's fun to be able to go back to your catalog and be able to listen to those, re-listen to them again and again. It's because I was always obsessed with podcasts. So the entire time, like I've been listening to podcasts, you know, I think since like 2009. And I was obsessed with, um, I was obsessed, I've always been obsessed with radio. Like I just thought it was it was a fascinating technology. Even before there was there wasn't even anything such as a podcast. There wasn't even a smartphone. And I would find ways back in the day when I was like a kid, I'd listen to like AM radio. I'd listen to like sports talk radio. I'd listen to the news. I would listen to um like the, they used to have these shows where like people write in, you know, questions, like uh, I guess advice columns, I guess is the way to think about it. Um and then 
they started uh, these early radio stations would start putting these these their radio shows they would they would stream them on the internet and but it wasn't like on demand that's why i think one of the the the, the miracles of podcasting is like this was on demand right you can listen to that episode today you know you can listen to my episodes 10 years from now whatever you want to do at your leisure and so early days of like broadband like i just remember how slow internet was back then uh like you i'd be listening to a radio station and then it would like buffer and you'd have to wait like 15 seconds to catch up and then it would it's not like it played where it left off it's like oh i just missed that 15 seconds or whatever so i've always been you know i, I love music too but i would probably spend half my time listening to spoken word just people talking um because i think as an introvert um like i i like talking to people don't get me wrong but it i don't know i just think that it's it was it was just something very interesting to me and then when podcasts came out i was like oh i immediately get this i was obsessed i would listen all the time and i don't remember to answer your question like why did i think i could do it i have no idea i just thought this would be really cool if you think about what the technology is is like it's an open protocol nobody owns it it's essentially like gives any human on earth no permission asking no permission whatsoever gives you to have a radio show right uh, about anything you want that could be accessed by anybody all over the world whenever they want. Like that's a, f- I almost, that's a miracle. Yeah. Like that it, to me is a miracle. And so I was like, Hey, somebody should do what Jocko's doing, but instead of doing it for military history, cause he, he does mostly like first person accounts, like autobiographies and stuff. I was started doing, I was like, let me just do it for biographies. Um, and this is also a combination of an idea that I heard. There's a guy named Kevin Rose who founded dig like a long time ago. This is like web, this is like the early days, I think, of Web 2, right? And he's one of the first people that got me interested in tech because I would watch his show called Dignation, which was, you could think of it almost like, it's like an early podcast, but it was like content marketing for his business, right? Because he would take, Dig was extremely popular at the time, and he would take like some of the most upvoted stories on Dig, and then him and his friends would get together, they like, drink beer and stuff and just hang out and talk about stories. But he'd also like, it was a very relaxed atmosphere, but you'd also be learning a lot. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And then he started this other series. He had one of the first high-quality video podcasts that interviewed entrepreneurs. It's called Foundation. It's still available. You can go and and watch these. These things are still on YouTube. And he interviewed Elon Musk in 2012. Go back and watch that interview because Elon doesn't even look like the same person. Hmm. He's like, you know, I think they just released the Model S. The the interview takes place in... uh, at on Tesla's like factory floor in California at the time. And there's something in that interview that I heard Elon say that gave me the idea to do founders later on. Once I discovered Jocko's podcast, I had to combine those two ideas. But Kevin's like, dude, you're crazy. Like you, you come from South Africa, you go to Canada. Then from Canada, you come to California. You started your first company in your twenties, right? You sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars. I think he sold zip two for like $300 million. Like how the hell did you do this? Like, how did you even learn to build a business, did you read a lot of business books or did you have a lot of mentors? And Elon's answer was fascinating to me. He's like, you know, this time he had no resources. No one knew who he was. So he's like, I didn't know many people in person. So I had to develop mentors in historical context. I did not read business books. I read biographies and autobiographies. I thought they were helpful. And then he went on to say, like, that's a way to develop mentors in historical context. He's like, when I read an autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, he brought up, or a biography of Benjamin Franklin, like I get to know who that person is. I get to know how they think. And now they can mentor me, even though Benjamin Franklin has been dead for 250 years, I could still use his ideas or see his approach to life and I can emulate that on my own. And so that was like, wow. Because I was reading a ton of business books at the time. 
I was reading a few biographies, but they were like, they weren't biographies of founders. They were like biographies like Jamie Dimon or something. They're like like CEOs, you know? There's nothing wrong with that, but I just find the creation of, like somebody, I think founders are the most important people in the world. And I don't mean just founders of companies. I mean, anybody that starts something new. It could be an idea, it could be a movement, it could be a movie, it could be a company, it could be a religion, like it could be a, a, a way of thinking, whatever it is. Just I, I'm fascinated with people that start things from, from brand new. And so I started reading a bunch of biographies and I'm like, oh, these are amazing. Like, clearly Elon's onto something. Like this guy, and now even to this day, he still reads biographies. He gave me the idea of actually reading um, when you don't have time, to, um, like if you're traveling, whatever. I just did this because I was in California uh, two weeks ago. I read the entire biography of Henry Flagler on my phone, on the um, Kindle app on my phone. And then I got back home and I transferred the highlights from that to the actual paper book. And then I did a podcast on it. But Elon talked about, you know, this guy at this point, Fast forward a few years, he's one of the richest people in the world. He has access, he can learn from whoever he wants and he could pay, you know, to have the best private tutors. But he's saying with his actions, it's like, no, I still get value out of picking up a book. Hmm. And I just think there's a, like, there, that's a deep insight where it's just like, this is not just him, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Jeff Bezos. I'm, I'm listing these people because we all know that they, they essentially have more resources than they can ever spend. And yet they still read books. And that technology, you know, the, the written word, the, as Stephen King says, books are uniquely portable magic, right? That is available to anybody. You know, you can pick up a book for $15, $20. You just talked about the Decoded podcast or the Phil Knight book. I think I paid 20 bucks for Jay-Z's autobiography and I paid like 15 for Phil Knight. Hmm. If, if they were actually priced to the value, it'd be 100 times that price. Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable, the value you get out of books. I, I am wondering, though, because you said you and I are essentially coming at the same thing by different angles where I get to interview living people right now. If there's one founder that you could have right now come back and be alive with you through your journey with founders, who would you love having, as you said, Steve Jobs earlier had the godfather um, helping him? Who would that be for you? Great question. All right, so that person has to be dead, right? Yeah. Um. And one person, let me think. I love questions like this. I use this in my own life where if I'm having dinner with somebody, like, okay, you're trapped on an island. You can only listen to one album for the rest of your life. What is it? You can only go to one city for the rest of your life. What is it? Is it? You can only have one meal in one restaurant. What is it? I think these are fantastic questions. I, I don't want to be sound too cliche, but I would have to say Steve Jobs. I mean, I, there's a reason I've done 13 podcasts on, and I'm not. I, he's probably the the, entre, the single most the, the entrepreneur I most admire, and I'm not talking about the person I most admire, right? Or the person I want to copy the most. That's different. Um, or even the, the the one book I would say, if you only could read one book, it was. But he, to me, he's just. If you say, okay, who's the greatest entrepreneur to ever live? That's subjective. You know, like you can make a case for whatever, but I don't think it's subjective. Like, can you name five? Are ten entrepreneurs better than Steve Jobs? I don't. I, I would. I don't think you can. Um, his He's the clearest thinker I've ever come across. I, I, I just. And you keep in mind, like what's so fascinating about it is like relatively uneducated. You know, didn't do the best in high school. Definitely a misfit. Uh, dropped out of college, but the clarity of his thought and how deep his thinking is. Um, I was just actually rereading highlights from. Uh, so I use this app called Readwise. It just pushes like random highlights that I've made. I've got over 20,000 highlights of the books I've read in Readwise. And it pushed this random quote to me last night that was fascinating. 
and it was in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. And he talks about what is the most important lesson that, that you can learn from Steve Jobs. And people think it's like, oh, the way your products look or like the design. And like, that's a very superficial understanding because Steve Jobs talked about design is not the way a product looks. It's, a, it's how it works, right? And Peter Thiel said something, I'm just going to read it. He says, the most important lesson to learn from Jobs has nothing to do with aesthetics. The greatest thing Jobs designed was his business. Apple imagined and executed definitive multi-year plans to create new products and distribute them effectively. Ever since he started Apple in 1976, Jobs saw that you can change the world through careful planning. And so that is that would probably be my answer because the greatest thing he ever designed was his business. Founders is a podcast, but it's also obviously a business. And this idea that you do that through careful planning and you have definitive multi-year plans. So yeah, that that's that, that would be my answer. And that is why. I had to ask and ask then, you said if there was one person you could co- be copying, it'd be different th- than Jobs. Who's that? So this one is, and uh, me and you have talked about him. I repeat his name on the podcast. I don't know. I wish I could go back and search every single one. I've got to, I probably mentioned Ed Thorpe. I've got to be close to like 500 times because <laughs> I, I just love him. So Keep in mind, what is like, what is Founders, right? It's a six-year project so far, thousands of hours, over 100,000 pages read, over 250 biographies, right? And all I'm doing is searching for the best ideas from history's greatest entrepreneurs that we can learn from, right? And then they all talk about not only their best ideas, they talk about their worst mistakes. Like most of these books are written when they're close to dying. And in many cases, they know they're dying. Like Sam Walton, he's like, I would have never wrote this book if I didn't get cancer, but I know I have limited time left. I want to pass on everything I learned, right? And so they talk about the stuff they like, that's really important to me. It's like more than me, I'm not trying to be brilliant. I'm trying to be consistently not dumb. And part of that is avoiding common mistakes. Like, you know, people becoming alcoholics, people not spending time with their kids, um, people having bad relationships, people over-optimizing for work at the detriment of the other parts of their life, not taking their care of their health. There's just mistakes that smart people make over and over again that you just have to be really foolish to think that you're not, there's something in our, our nature that causes us to repeat these things over and over again, right? And so the reason I say Ed Thorpe is the one I'm trying to emulate, he is the person that has got the closest, in my opinion, to mastering life. There's a t- even Steve Jobs. He, he's writing his book. The reason he gave Walter Isaacson so much access as he knows he's dying. And he says it in the end of, towards the end of the book. He's like, listen, I want the reason I agreed to this project because I want my, my kids to know who I was. You know, his kids were still young. He died, I think he was 56. I think his oldest son might have been, you know, senior in high school. And he's like, I sacrificed a lot of time with my kids and my wife because I was obsessed with building Apple, right? And I'm not saying he regrets that. I'm not I actually, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. But just this idea was like, he knew he had flaws. Like he, the, the, the way he abandoned his first daughter, Lisa, uh, the way he treated people. And like, he was very different. The 25-year-old Steve Jobs and 55-year-old Steve Jobs was like another person, right? Completely different. Like he definitely evolved. So I admire Steve Jobs for the company he built, but I don't want to be that person. Like, I want to be a good father. I want to be a good husband. I want to take care of my health. Uh, I want to also have fun in life. I want to build a great company uh, that the, the the products that my company makes, in this case, their podcasts, like enhance your life. They make your work better, right? There are ideas that you can repeat and then keep spreading. And I think that ripple through the universe that founders, if I never give up and I do this for multiple decades, can make is like very impactful. But Ed Thorpe is, first of all, genius, way smarter than I'll ever be. I could read 
a million books. I'm never touching. Like he's just got, yeah. he, he's just a lot smarter than, than, I, than I'll ever be. There's a great episode I just listened to with Tim Ferriss. Uh, he just interviewed an 89 year old Ed Thorpe guy's still sharp, still rational, still like I listened to that episode twice. And I was like, it just reaffirms that he's my blueprint. And the reason he's my blueprint is because he was smart enough to realize to avoid the pitfalls that most people fall into. Right. And he, so the reason I like the blueprint, as I understand at Dorp is one, he optimized for lifelong learning, right? he was very curious since he was a kid, still curious to this day. He still talked about like a research project. He's doing at 89 years old. Uh, he was very gifted at making money, but he knew that you're more likely to make a lot of money. If you, a lot of money, if you follow your genuine intellectual curiosity. And so for him, he, he's like, he was a mathematician. He's like, Oh, he started, I was like, I bet you I could find ways to get a mathematical edge in uh, with casino games, like in Las Vegas. So he winds up fi- creating a simple method to count cards so you have an edge over the casino in blackjack. That was so successful, he made money at that, but then he writes a book and shares his knowledge with everybody else, right? Which is what I'm trying to do on Founders. I, I spend, you know, seven days a week reading. I read seven days a week for a couple hours every day. And then I take interesting ideas and put them into an audio format, right? So other people can benefit. So then he writes a book called Beat the Dealer, sells millions of copies. This is in like 1960. Uh, meets Claude Shannon, father of information theory, one of the most important thinkers of our time. Maybe our entire uh, economy now, re- a large part of our entire economy rests upon like the, the work that Claude Shannon did, right? Meets Claude Shannon, they make the world's first uh, wearable computer. Then like, and it's a way to to give you an edge in the game of roulette. And they like that's crazy to me. Meets a 38-year-old Warren Buffett and tells his wife after they have dinner with Warren Buffett, that dude's going to be the richest person in the world one day. And do it from right away. Uh, winds up being an investor in Berkshire Hathaway at like $900 a share. I think it's like, what, half a million today or something, something like that. Winds up being the first LP in Citadel. Uh, meets a 19-year-old Ken Griffin at his house. Ken comes to his house and he, he's the first check into that. Winds up being one of the best investments of all time. Runs a hedge fund for 20 years, returns a quantitative hedge fund. But I'm pretty sure he's the, the person that invented quantitative hedge funds, if I'm not mistaken. He has a 20-year uh, record, never had a down year. I think average like 19 or 20% comp- uh, returns year after year. Uh, that winds up uh, blowing up, has nothing to do with him, winds up getting investigated for a crime that he had nothing to do with, had, had to do with, uh, like he's in the West Coast, uh, he ran the West Coast office, his East Coast office. There were some shenanigans, but they wound up, I think, only charging one person. So when that ended, he's like, oh, okay, what do I want to do now? I already have more money than I can ever spend in the world in my life. Like, um, should I, do I want like this gigantic operation? And that means I have to do things I don't want to do. He's like, no. So he winds up doing almost like a completely automated, uh, another hedge fund, almost completely automated. And I think he was running like double the amount of money. His old hedge fund had like 80 people. And he realized, oh, if I redesign this, I can do, double the amount, we can manage double the amount of money with like six people, right? And the reason he did it is because he's like, I want to go home at night. Like I'm going to work, you know, maybe nine to five or whatever he was working, but I'm going to see my kids. I'm going to have dinner with my wife. Uh, he, took, he took care of his health. That's why he looks, if you look at the video he did with Tim, everybody's like in the, the comments are like, dude, he looks like he's 60. I, I he's literally showed the picture to my wife last night and she goes, he's 58. <laughs> no, he's 89. So he says he, and then again, the reason, like his brilliance and his rationality is not just applied to money making. It's applied to having a, com- yeah. like a complete life. And so one thing I stole from him is 
he said, okay, every hour, I look at every hour that I'm working out as one less day I'll spend in the hospital later on in life. And so he picked up a, a habit of fitness when he was in college and never gave it up. To this day, he still was talking about doing pull-ups and stuff at 89. Yeah. And then his, his simple system, he's like, a large part of health issues is because we're not meant to carry excess weight, right? And the modern lifestyles makes it easy to carry excess weight. So he's like, I just weigh myself every day. And then I input it into, like, he keeps track of it. And he goes, it's very simple. It's like, oh, I gained maybe a pound or two over the weekend. I'll just eat a little less. Or, hey, I'm a pound or two less lighter. lighter. Maybe I'll have some ice cream or whatever, you know, whatever you want to do. So I do that. Same thing. I wake up every day. I weigh myself. I put it in this app called Zero. Um, and, you you know, it charts out for years since I, this is probably, I don't know, three years ago when I learned that lesson. I forgot when I read that book for the first time. I've reread it since then. But it's like, oh, my, my weight just stays in like this four pound. Like, it's impossible. When you have these tight feedback loops, it's like, oh, okay, I get like, I went a little hard on the birthday cake this, this weekend. Okay, I'm going to, you know, chill for a little bit. Or I'm going to eat a little less or maybe I'll do an extra hour of cardio, whatever you're going to do. But my point is, it's like he identified, the reason he's my blueprint because he identified a handful, again, go back to a handful of things that are extremely important to him. I'm going to be good with my family. I'm going to be in fantastic health. I'm going to always optimize for lifelong learning and I'm going to be extremely skilled at my job and then I'm going to have fun. Yeah. Okay, that's five things. That's my blueprint. If that's good enough for him, that dude is way smarter than I'll ever be. Why don't I just copy that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the remarkable things he, he also did, in addition to plenty of other things we won't discuss, is he uh, he identified Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme like 20 years before <laughs> anyone really found out. And he was he was warning some other people. That's just like another interesting kind side comment. You said you love those questions of like, if you could only do this one thing or you could only eat this one thing, one thing the rest of your life. If Ed was in the room with you right now, you've got one question for him. What are you asking him? What's your biggest regret in life? Because I can't think of any that he's that he says in his book. And I know he he like he didn't expect his so his wife Vivian dies. He talks about that at the end of the book. It's like real. Like I had tears in my eyes when I got to that section. And he talks about like it's so glad that he got he optimized for time spent with his wife and kids because he's like once you already have more money you could spend. Most people fall in the trap. It's just like, I just got to go collect more. Yeah. And he's like, but I can't, he's like, I turned down businesses and investment opportunities that I knew would make money because they would require time away from my wife. Yeah. Now, what if he didn't make that decision? Then his wife gets diagnosed with cancer and dies. Yeah. And so now he's left with a gigantic regret. So at the end of the book, it's very clear. He's like, we had an amazing like love affair or like love story, whatever you want to call it. And like, we, spent a ton of time together. We enjoyed ourselves. We built a beautiful family. Like, I just think that is part of being a contented human, you know, even for introverted people, like humans are, we may not want a bunch of humans, but it, it doesn't matter how introverted you are. Like human, keeping good people around you is just, is one of the, you know, it's just fundamental to who we are as human beings. It's extremely important. And the idea that you can damage a relationship that's important to you because you're chasing another dollar that you'll never spend is, is crazy to me. Yeah, and, and reading these biographies and understanding the people who went wrong on that path, how detrimental that is. That That's why I think listening to your show, reading more biographies, reading more books, stories, understanding that is so helpful. I, I do want to know, though, you said if there was one book that you could read, which which one is it? Out of one I've done on the podcast. Oh, so are, would you have a different answer? No, if you could only read one book, yeah, it's still the it's the book that you just held up. It's still the James Dyson one. Um, but let's say let's say that's off the table because that's something I I you know talk about all the time. What's another book? Like, what is the best book? 
That's a great question. Because it's almost like, it's so hard for me to even understand that because, first of all, I think I also like a lot more books than, than other people do. Like, there's some books that I love that I've heard from people like, I was bored out of my mind. And I, I you know, I just didn't have that. Um, I just think I, I had a genuine love for reading and I still do since I was a kid. So, um, yeah, I, I still, you know what? I, I, I think I just have to go with the James Dyson one because that's the one I thought most about. Hmm. What about, because I, I, I know like you don't only read. Like the, I, the, the reason I actually first got connected with you um, is I came across notes you took on a podcast. I was like, this is great. This is someone else listening to another podcast. I think it was one of the, the Toby, I think his last name's Luke um, yep. found Yeah, it was great, great notes. What is one of the other- Was that the, was that the Invest the, Like the Best episode? It was Arm the Rebels. He did? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. I'll yep. link up your notes to that because um, that was fantastic. I've, I've revisited that one again and again. But what is another resource you've used that has really helped you out on your journey that isn't a book? Podcast. No, I mean, is there a specific one? Is there a specific podcast, documentary, talk that similar to the James Dyson one? Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, so this is not a podcast. <laughs> it is, what, in my opinion, the best talk on YouTube. It is called running down. You got to link this. It is called running down a dream, how to survive and thrive in a career you love. It is by Bill Gurley. Bill Gurley is a venture capitalist. I think he used to be a benchmark. I think he just retired. Um, but it is, he profiles. It's the same way I feel about, um, about what I'm doing at Founders, where he profiles five people that he admires and he realizes they all, even though they're in different domains, they all have different traits, Right. And so it's uh, Bobby Knight, the, the, the basketball coach, Bob Dylan, the, um, the, the, the musician, Danny Meyer, the entrepreneur and restaurateur, Katrina Lake, and Sam Hinkie. And it's just, I've watched this over and over again. It's just absolutely fantastic because the same like passion and drive and intelligence that all five of those apply to their work, I see the, like that same personality type. I read about constantly yeah. over and over again. They might, that, that's what also I think is very fascinating about this and why, like, I think these lessons can be like generalized and applied to our work is because I'm always amazed when like there's people that didn't know each other, lived at different points in human history, worked in different industries and lived in different geographic locations. And yet through their experience, they arrived at same conclusions where like, oh, this idea is valuable. I mentioned one earlier, like you can't, you have to be relentlessly resourceful. You can't waste the resources of your company. Many of that is, uh, most of those resources are not only human capital, but actually money. And that's why they always tell you, be frugal, watch your cost. This repeated over and over again. Like in technology companies and automobile companies and steel companies, uh, the Rockefeller episode, how much of that was just him finding sneaky little ways to make, he could, the re, one of his gigantic advantages was the fact that he could make money at prices that would bankrupt his competitors. Yeah. And so when there was these busts in the kerosene, because in the early days of oil, that was the main, the main product, these busts in these kerosene markets, they're inevitable booms and busts, which he knew there were cycles, right? Every time that happened, he's still making a profit. He, that was a, a crazy line in the book. There was not a single year of his entire career that he ever had a loss. That's bananas. Yeah. And so what happens is I have the lowest cost structure. I'm weeding out, you know, I'm checking how how many drops of of solder, whatever that I don't know how to pronounce that, is taking place. Can we that you did 40? Can we do 38? Can we do 39? Can we, you know, instead of having 14 inches of of wood to heat the fire, can we do 12 inches? Like that's just the way he thought. And so that gave him the lowest cost structure in the business. And allowed him to make a profit. And so when you have a drop in prices, it would bankrupt his 
competitors. And so he winds up buying their assets. I forgot what it was in the podcast. It was like something like 80 cents on a dollar. Hmm. Um, so again, th these are all different domains. These people did not know each other and they just arrive at the same conclusions. And I'm like, oh, okay. That clear, that's like a big red flashing light. These are important lessons. Use them in your work. Yeah. Bill Gurley's running down a dream that will certainly be, be linked up. And that is an amazing talk. Um, I second that. It's incredible. Y you mentioned some of these things that are just like red flashing lights for you. You have this line, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but it's basically if I could sum up everything I've learned in Founders, it comes down to two things. These people have a Kanye West level of self-belief and the work ethic of Kobe Bryant. Can you unpack that for a second? Because I, I want to dive into cool. each of those. Well, you got it right. <laughs> that, that, that's such a, so I was like, maybe I've heard it from you, you so many times. I'm like, yeah. this is one of the best things. Because <laughs> you don't want to be overly reductive. You know, you're like, how can I, um, like, if I can distill what I've learned from a hundred reading a hundred thousand pages down to something that fits in a tweet, I think that's the to me the best way to do it. And um, they're all there. So this is also I think important to discuss because I think there's a lot of these examples in these books and the way these founders think that is almost exactly opposite to what like the way society would want to tell you to think. And one of us is like, oh, you know, don't, don't shine too bright. Dull your, like, don't be so arrogant. Don't be so like, we don't have uh, an epidemic of overconfidence. We have the opposite. There is a ton of super smart and talented people that are not like fulfilling their potential, starting companies, providing a product or service that will benefit the lives of other people because they don't believe they can. And so that is why when you listen to my podcast, 90% of my highlights come from the struggle, the early days. I am fundamentally not interested when they're already super rich because so few people, first of all, it's a lot less interesting, but so few people can identify with that. Everybody can identify with, this is the way my life is now. This is the, There's a gap between the way my life is now and the way I think, I, like where I want it to be and not only like the potential I think I possess. And so you're never going to reach that potential if you don't have self-belief. And so that's why I, I keep referencing on the podcast. Go watch the first two episodes of the new Kanye documentary on Netflix called Gene, I think it's called Genius. That is founder, he had founder mentality. The dude is literally, he's, he's so broke, he cannot afford a car. And he's like, I'm walking from my apartment in Newark, New Jersey, because he had to go to, to, to Manhattan to sell beats to people like Jay-Z and, and Puff Daddy and the rest of these people. And he's like, I'm walking to the train and I'm already practicing my Grammy speech. He knew, he knew from the get-go. He's like, listen, my life's not like this now, but I know my beats, are, my beats are really good. I know I can rap and I know I have more hustle and drive than almost everybody else in this industry. And so as long as I just maneuver myself in these positions and make people aware of my existence, the rest will take care of itself. And that's something he learned from his mom. He's like, there's nothing you can say to me that'll, that'll stop me from believing in myself. George Lucas had the same thing. So let me, like, no one's going to think, oh, you know who, uh, who was very similar? George Lucas uh, of Star Wars fame and Kanye West. But go read George Lucas's biography. This is episode 35 of Founders. It's one of my favorite biographies I've ever read because there's a line in that book that I've never forgotten that I try anytime I talk to other founders. I'm always like puffing them up because it says George Lucas invested in what he, uh, he says George Lucas unapologetically invested in what he believed in most, himself. <laughs> Kanye West invested in himself. John D. Rockefeller invested in himself. Steve Jobs invested in himself. And you don't make the, those investments if you don't believe that you are capable of more than the conditions of your life currently show. So you've got, Rick, we just talked about Rick Rubin before we started recording. The episode I, I did on Rick Rubin. He'll tell you, 
Self-belief is mandatory. No one says, no one achieves great things and then be like, oh, okay, now I believe. No, belief comes before ability. Before you accomplish anything great, you believe that you can do that. And so that's why you have to have, and even if you don't have it, what I, I've, I've talked to other founders and some of them, I'm like, dude, you're way smarter. Like your intelligence and drive is way higher than your self-belief. Like you got to get that belief like up, neck, like just get to, 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 just get your self-belief to the level of your intelligence and your drive. And that'll do so much for you. They're like, well, I, how do you do that? What? Pretend, just act like you're just, just act, literally pretend. Like how, if a person has Kanye West levels of self-belief and I don't, what's the best way to get there? Act like you do. And eventually you'll start believing that you do. And the more, obviously the more success you have, it's a lot easier to believe, but you've got to take like, that's the first step. It's just like, there's just a ton of people that are sitting on the sidelines because they buy into the bullshit that society says. It's like, yes, don't be outwardly arrogant. That is bad for human relations, right? But if you go back to Steve Jobs' mentor, which is Nolan Bushnell. Nolan Bushnell is the founder of Atari. He also founded Chuck E. Cheese. He was also one of the first technology company founders that the venture capitalists actually like didn't try to replace. So he was like relatively young. I think he was like 27 when he was running his company. And that was very unusual. This, this is in like in the 80s. But he winds up, uh, Steve Jobs is like 10 years younger than him. He winds up hiring Steve Jobs. And he's like, this is advice I gave Steve Jobs, the 19-year-old version of Steve Jobs that he ran with. And he's like, pretend to be in control and people will assume that you are. And then he, the second piece of advice he gave to Steve Jobs, he's like, only the arrogant are self-confident enough to push their creative ideas onto others. He's like, there's people that had just as good ideas as Steve Jobs did. But Steve believed he was always right and was willing to push longer and harder than those with less self-belief. So that's the first part of it. And the second part of it is it's not just, oh, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to sit in my office, I'm going to sit in my house and just think I'm the best ever. I have this great belief and then do nothing. No, that doesn't work. Every single person, I've, I've not covered one person, not a single person that I've come across with, come across that was lazy or that did not have an intense and insane work ethic. Yeah. And so the, re- the reason I think it's so easy to uh, illustrate that, the, the, the premise behind that idea with somebody in like physical sports is because Kobe is, is competing in like a zero-sum game. Most of business, obviously, is not that. And you can clearly see his work ethic. You know, Chris Bosh is getting inducted into the Hall of Fame and he talks about, you know, my goal was I'm going to go downstairs. I got up early and they're, they're, they're at Olympic training camp together. He's like, I'm going to be the first one at breakfast. I'm going to show these people like I want it more, right? Goes downstairs and it's like four or five in the morning and he sees Kobe drenched in sweat, ice pack on his knees. And he's like, what Kobe did, I recommend watching this, this talk on, on YouTube. He goes, what Kobe did that day was completely unfathomable to me. I had the entire summer off. This guy had just uh, played in the, uh, the finals, came up short, and like a week later, he's already outworking me. And so those are like, the reason I chose those two is because everybody knows, and that's usually what you know, people don't like Kanye about, but everybody knows, oh yeah, Kanye's got a ton of self-belief. And uh, you know, it's very obvious that, that Kobe had an unusual work ethic. Even if you didn't think he had the best work ethic in the NBA, there's not that many people working harder than, than that than that guy did. Yeah, I know you've shared this incredible story by Michael Jordan, actually, talking about uh, Tiger Woods. And in 2005, Tiger battles back against Phil to, to win the championship Sunday night, right? Next morning, 6.30, he's in the gym. Like, he just wins the championship, battle back, he's in the gym. And it's funny, so I, I played lacrosse, um, and so the, the national championship was on Monday. And so it was won by Maryland, unfortunately. Um, their head coach, John Tillman, 
And so uh, someone reached out to me. They go, they, they were on the Maryland campus and John Tillman won the national championship Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning at 6.30. He was back in his office getting ready for recruiting. And I'm like, that's what it takes. That's why that guy's winning multiple national championships. It's, it's not just work ethic. Like the, most people think there's like, they're like, yeah, I work really hard. And then you see examples from these different books, from these people. And you're like, oh, hard. They're working at a completely different level than I thought. It's Olympic level work ethic. And I just love hearing those stories because it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm probably capable of working a little bit harder in some of these things. Um, and that line by you, I just think is fantastic. Well, Michael also says something in, in his biography that changed the way I approach founders. And because he gets to the dream team and he's like, man, I don't want to play on this. I've been going to the finals. Like my, my, my uh, years are really long, but he's like, I had to go because these are the best basketball players in the world. And I wanted to see how they practiced. And he gets there and he has a line in that book that changed my perspective forever because he realizes like, oh, you know, these are the top 10, maybe a top 11 uh, basketball players in the world, not including Christian later. Um, and he's like, the re there's, there's some of them, you know, had won a bunch of championships, but a bunch got to the, the very top, but didn't, none of them won as many as Michael winds up going down to win, right? And so he was disgusted by their practice habits. This is the top of the top, Right. And he goes, he says something, he goes, they're deceiving themselves about what the game requires. Now, it's important though, like how can Michael push himself so much further than everybody else does? These are, so I did two, I did, I read a biography of him and then I read Michael's autobiography and his autobiography makes the point. He's like, everybody talks about my work ethic. He's like, I, that didn't click until I found something I loved. He's like, I'm not, uh, uh, he even said, he's like, I'm not, uh, he didn't use the word lazy. I forgot the word, but he's just like, I'm only driven in this one endeavor because to me it feels like play and that's the idea that i learned from naval ravikant that also inspired me to do the podcast he's like if you find work that feels like play you're just going to do it more than anybody else does and so anybody that's trying to compete directly with you that doesn't really love it when you actually love it is not going to stand a chance they might they might be a competitor for a year two years three years but eventually you're just gonna you're gonna keep going because you actually love to do it and Michael's point was just like, st stop worrying about my work ethic and focus on finding something you love as much as I love being the best basketball player in the world. And then that drive is just there. It's just like you said, I just won a uh, championship in lacrosse. I'm going the next day. It's, you're going the next day because that's what you love to do. I just saw this interview with, uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's also a personal hero of mine. And somebody asked him a question like, you're 75. Why are you still going to the gym? They literally did the interview, I think, outside of Gold's Gym in Venice. And he's like, he goes, why am I still eating? Why am I still sleeping? Why am I still breathing? And he goes, I will go to the gym until I die. That's how you know he loves it. So, so you mentioned MJ. One of the things I love in his awesome biography is driven from within, right? Like that's the title. It's not driven from outside circumstances. It's driven from within. And I would love for you just to hit on that inner drive and the importance of that, and even like go further based on the number of people that you've researched and studied. I just don't think, I don't think there's such thing as like teaching somebody to be an entrepreneur. Like they just have, like, it's just some, that doesn't mean you can't improve at the skill, right? But this idea is just like, oh, can somebody else like force me to do this? It's like, no, you have something inside of you that has to come out. You have a problem that you want to solve. You have something that you want to give to the world. And the, the way I describe this is like, I've read a bunch of biographies of filmmakers. And I think that's the most, the easiest way to digest this idea because everybody knows what the experience of like, uh, of experience a movie, right? And then hearing the people that create 
this, you know, two or three hour event that we have that we love, how they approach their work. And it's all, it's like, I felt compelled. There was a compulsion to do this. Even the parts that I didn't like, I mentioned George Lucas. George Lucas had the idea for Star Wars for a long time, right? He was working as like an intern intern for Francis Ford Coppola, like almost a decade, maybe not that long, but close to that, maybe five or 10 years before Star Wars came out. And there was parts of that he, he hated, like sitting down and writing. He said, he's like, listen, I'm going to sit here. I, th- this, there's no easy way to do this. I'm going to sit at my desk. I have two rules. One, I can't, I cannot get up. I have to sit here from nine to five, right? And I could do two, one of two things. I can do nothing or I can write. That's it. And that's, he, so he had to grind it out. And he's like, I hate grinding it out. And I think he, it was either him or Spielberg. I'm pretty sure it was Lucas that drew the analogy of creating a movie was like climbing a mountain. It's difficult. Uh, it's arduous. Halfway through, you're like, I want to give up. But then you get to the end, you're like, all right, give me a break. Give me a few weeks and I'm doing this again. It's like this weird thing. So um, I, I think all of that's internal. You know, nobody has to tell me, David, get up and read. David, get up and make podcasts. Like, just like no one has to tell you this. Like, it's just something that you're drawn to. And that's why I really think you should pay attention. This is another lesson I learned from Steve Jobs. He's just like, it's not that he was against data by any means, but he valued human intuition. He's like, the older I get, the more important I understand, uh, the, the more important I understand intuition to be. And so there is something in you and everybody that they're just naturally interested in. Charlie Munger knows this because one of his most famous pieces of advice is like, you got to follow your natural drift. For me and Warren, we were extremely interested in business. We think it's like this wonderful world of all these interesting stories and companies and founders. And so no one had to tell us to read these biographies, to read these annual reports. It's just something we did. We followed our natural drift. And he learned that by first doing something he thought was going to be good because it'd make money and status as being an attorney and realizing, oh, I hate this. I should go do what I love. And then once you're doing that, then again, how many people are going to outcompete Warren Buffett? There's a there's a there's a uh, a line in his biography where he's just like somebody had met him and like realized it's like oh this guy reads annual reports for fun I'm doing it for work it's like oh this task I have to do to make an informed decision he's doing it as like Friday night at a show it's like let me pick up this annual report those those people are almost impossible to compete with yeah I mean Joseph Campbell's follow your bliss right the, the thing I saw especially early on in athletics is. That inner drive is the only sustainable fuel source. There are so many people who were pushed, right? Like, no, no, this is an internal pull. And you see it again and again and again, because if you want to achieve excellence and sustain it, the only way you can do that is if you love that over time. Um, Comes from within there. Another thing I'm really interested, because you just mentioned Arnold, um, he's got that massive um, autobiography, which is unbelievable as well, is, is around his vision. And I would love to hear your thoughts on just vision of founders early on and, and if there are any commonalities or things you've seen around the vision and what people are going after. Okay, so early on, I didn't have a vision. All I knew is that I have basically four, four main interests in life, right? I like books, I like podcasts, I like entrepreneurship, and I like history. And so founder, if you could map those out, founders just sits in the middle of all that, right? Um, and so... I was just, I just thought, I never thought it could be like a job. And that's really weird. Cause it's not like I, I'm like, if, you know, people that know me, it's like, oh, the, you know, no one's going to say David lacks self confidence. Right. Um, but for some reason, I just had this weird mental block, which is like, oh, this is going to be a fun little side project. 
I'll put it up. Maybe it makes a little money because at the very beginning, I think it did like ads or like affiliates or stuff like that. Um, and just so over time, um, I started, do, the more I did it, the more I learned, like you get better at doing it, right? And then the more I liked it. And then I started getting these weird, like crazy emails and reviews and like, you know, people literally writing 2000 words about, you know, the 25 episodes I've done, what, what impact it's made on their life. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And so it wasn't, I think if you look at my uploads, it wasn't, I think until 2018 that I made a decision. I'm just going to upload all, like, I'm not taking any weeks off. Like, I'm just going to upload and upload and upload. You know, I, I did, I think 66 podcasts last year. I think back then I was doing like one a week or something like that. So now I just, as fast as I can make them and I don't rush by any means, I just release them whenever they're done, you know? Um, so there wasn't like a master plan. Uh, I thought a lot. By the time I got to episode 20, which I think is Masters of Doom, which is the book on John Carmack and John Romero, they were like, they had, they had some really innovative business ideas applied to games, which is really weird if you think about like where a lot of the, the technological innovation on the internet happens. Happens in two places. Gaming and porn, for some reason, like, says a lot about human nature, like what we're interested in. But they seem to be like so much further ahead of anybody else. And so they had this idea. This goes to like the business. I've, I've spent, I mean, an ungodly amount of time thinking about the business model of podcasts, right? And a lot of the, like, I just took their idea that they used for Doom and applied it to podcasting. Um, and that's when I first realized, because I was like, well, it's really hard to make money. Like there's a ton of podcasts, you know, millions out there right now. And, you know, it's power law, like rules everything around us. Like less than 1% get like almost all the revenue. And a lot of that comes from, uh, like in the United States, it's ad-based. In China, China's podcast net, uh, podcast industry is like 10 times the size of ours, something like that. It's like gigantic compared to uh, to us. And theirs is all subscription or, or paid, um, almost all. So they, they, th that was interesting to me. I was like, well, why is the, the American podcast market so much smaller? Like it's ad-based and why is China's so much larger and it's uh, like, you know, subscription or, or one-time payments or whatever the case was. And so somewhere along the line, I realized it's like, okay, I may never have a podcast that has the audience size of like Joe Rogan or any, like you just need a big ass audience to make a lot of money in ads, right? Because they, they charge, you know, you need at least 50,000, 100,000, you know, whatever the download number is, 200,000. In some cases, you know, podcasts now they get, you know, 5 million, they have an audience of 5 million, 10 million, maybe 15 million people. And so I realized like, well, I need to find a sustainable way to do this uh, where like, you have if part of turning pro is figuring out how to turn your art into profit, right? You're not doing it for the money, but the money enables you to produce the craft of what's important to you. Um, so I don't, it, it was just like a slow evolution, and a lot of it was formed by the books I was reading, is the way I would answer your question. Where it's just like, I didn't have the ideas, I didn't know, I didn't have a master plan. Um, now that it's sustainable, it's something I work on, you know, I don't work on anything else, like we talked about earlier. Now it's literally just like I'm 257 episodes in, I think, 256 if you include all the bonus episodes. Um, now I know because I've gotten thousands of emails and messages, this is like the impact it's having on other people's lives. And so now my only focus is, is literally just trying to get it to a couple million entrepreneurs over the course of my career. If I can get, you know, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million people to listen to it, I do, I think like it, it would genuinely make your life better because a large part of your life is work. And founders improves like your approach to work because you're just downloading. The way I think about founders is the way August Escoffier, August Escoffier was one of the most influential 
the, probably the most influential chef to ever live, right? I did a podcast on him and his partner, Cesar Ritz. Cesar Ritz is the guy that Ritz Carlton's named after. So he might be the greatest hotelier of all time. Happens to be partners with the greatest or most influential chef of all time. How is that even possible? The book is amazing, by the way. It's just such a fantastic read uh, about their partnership and learning from them. But something he, he said in that book fundamentally changed the way I think about founders. Because Auguste Escoffier wrote this book over 120 years ago. It's called The Culinary Guide. It's in French. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it translates to. And he said, he goes, listen, this is a book, but he goes, that's just the, the, the format it's taking. That's not what I think about. He goes, it's a tool for working professionals. It is a tool for chefs. They're going to keep for their entire career. They can use this reference where he distilled every single thing that he had learned over the course of his career into a book. And that book is still being bought today, 120 years later. And I was like, that is really the way I think about founders. It is a tool for working professionals. It just happens to be in the form of podcast because that's a good way to accomplish the goal. And what is the goal? It's to get these ideas from history's greatest entrepreneurs into your brain so then you can use them for your work. And so the master plan is like, I'm already building the tool. I want to keep improving the tool. I want to keep uh, like extending the tool, but I want to just spread the tool to as many people as possible because I truly believe that it makes people's lives better because I've heard from thousands of people that say just that. Whether it's what you said, it's comforting, it's motivational, it's educational, it's entertaining. It's just a positive good for the world, in my opinion. Can you hit on your, this ties back to your work ethic, which is remarkable, but I'm curious, like the work ethic and how does that play out in, in terms of like your practice? What are you actually doing behind the scenes that we don't get to see, but results in 90 minutes of just what I think is gold in your podcast? I think, um, one thing I wanted to do, and I, 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 I did it before, it was, it was not intentional. So it's not like, oh, I had this plan, and this is the way it turned out. But I realized I was doing it, and I was like, oh, I just need to keep doing more of it. Where I just wanted to make sure that there was not another podcast in the world that comes out as frequently as mine does that that person prepares more than I do. So if like, think about how crazy. There is a, a certain like craziness to this, but it's not crazy to me because it is kind of natural. Where it's like, before I sit down to talk to you, I have to read an entire book. Like, that's insane. Like, and this is something my friend helped me really, uh, like, understand. Because he's like, David, you don't, we were at lunch. I remember exactly where we were eating wings, chicken wings, hot wings. And he's like, David, you have completely overestimate how much people read. Because he's like, you read all the time. So you just, you're kind of like in your own bubble, your own world. He's like, people are not reading out here. He's like, he's like how much, I forgot the exact contents of the discussion, but. He's like, how much do you people do you think an average person reads? I go, I don't know, like a book a month, something like that. He goes, no. He's like, they're not even reading a book a year. Like, it's just so insane. So, um, the the prep is just, hey, I'm willing because I, I think it's fun though. Like reading these biographies is not. Everybody keeps asking me. It's like, hey, can I get transcripts to your show? No, go read the book. That's the transcript. Like, you will see what like all the stuff. Because if you spend 15, 20 hours, like in the case of the 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 the, the Titan, the, the biography, right? I said, listen, listen, you don't have to read the whole 700 pages, but read the first 325 because that's how he built his company. You can read 325 pages. Like, get the, come on. Like, are you, what I would say is like, are you busier than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? No, you're not. And these dudes are still reading. Like, you have no excuse. You are not busier than them. And they're still reading. You have to read. Um, so the, 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 before I even sit down to do anything, right, I've put in a lot more hours than I think almost anybody else would that can release 66 podcasts in a year, right? 
Um, and then from there, I, I transfer everything to this app called Readwise. Readwise is like uh, Readwise, um, which I would link to in the, the show notes because I'm sure the people that listen to your podcast read as well. It's just a, it's a reading technology company. So we describe themselves, which is really fascinating. But it's like my second brain. I just put every single highlight and note that I make into from any book into Readwise. And then if you use the Readwise app, you can do this thing. And it's uh, like, I try not to spend too much time on social media other than like promoting the podcast, but I open up Readwise and this, this app called the, the Highlights feed. And all it does is it just looks like a Twitter feed. And instead of seeing tweets from other you know people you follow, it's just highlights from books. It shows you the name of the book, the cover of the book, the author of the book, and whatever you highlight or note you put. And so that is really a, my form of practice where it's not good enough for me to just read something two years ago. You're going to forget. So you listen to the podcast, you know I'm constantly referencing. I don't just do... Like in the Rockefeller episode, let's let's take a look at the Rockefeller episode, right? I think it's a good example. If you go to the show notes on the Mr. Feed, I'll list how many other, there's something in that book that made me think of something else I read. So in Rockefeller's case, he made me think of when I read the biography of William Randolph Hearst. He made me think of when I read the biography of Joseph Pulitzer. He made me think of when I read the biography of the founder of in and Burger. He made me think of when I read Poor Charlie's Almanac. Uh... Uh, the, Ryan Holiday's book on conspiracy, which is like the Peter Thiel thing. Uh, the biography of Alexander the Great, J.P. Morgan, the founder of UPS, uh, this billionaire um, real estate investor in New York that I read a biography of, and Enzo Ferrari. Like, the only reason I can remember this stuff is because I spend a long, a lot, maybe an hour, two hours a day. I don't actually like time myself, but that would be my estimate. Just rereading past highlights. This is all prep for the podcast because I don't, like I'm, I'm working on a, uh, a book right now that my friend Eric Jorgensen recommended to me. It's called The Richest Man in the World. Didn't even know this guy existed. He's like live in like the 1500s. He's a rat bastard, by the way. He's a terrible person. <laughs> but, um, but like I, 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 I'm reading. So when I make this podcast, it won't just be on Jacob Fugger, I think is how you say his name. It's whatever Jacob's approach to his work was that is similar to the 250 other people that I've, that I, uh, have studied because if I can draw these parallels for the listener, then I think the ideas will get deeper into your brain, and then you realize, hey, I'm just going to take that idea out, the, the 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 thinking behind that idea, and I'm going to apply it to my work. Um, so the prep is just reading books seven days a week, reading highlights seven days a week, and that's that's it. You said you're trying to get these ideas into your head. Has there been a consistent idea or theme throughout all the books you've read that has been hardest for you to implement and embody? Yeah, it's just beha- it's just changing your behavior because you know there's t- I'm sure you you've experienced this in your life where you're like you read a book like that's a great idea and then you don't actually implement it and at that point if I don't actually change my behavior then that means I'm not I'm wasting my time right then that means this is a gigantic waste of time it's not just the ideas it's using that idea as a as a prompt for change of your behavior. And so um, one thing is really, it's not like a difficult thing, but I'm not by any means like straight edge. Um, But the more I read about people having struggles with like alcohol or any kind of drugs, um, that has definitely changed. Like, and I've never been a big drinker or or anything like that. Right. Um, But you just see like bad behavior, uh, bad decision-making usually by when you're like, you're changing like the chemistry of your brain and everything. So like that has changed my behavior. I haven't eliminated it completely. Like I still like to have a good time every once in a while, 
Um, but that's something that, that, that pops up that it's like, I'm not perfect in, but I'm not, but it's definitely like changed. And I also think like, it's not just, I'm not just trying to shoot for like being a perfect person. I'm trying to also enjoy life. Um, but that's, that's, uh, one thing that comes up over and over again. Like, you know, people do not make good decisions when they drink all the time or they're on a, they're a lot of drugs. Yeah. And I've, I've experienced that in like my personal life because people in my family, I've seen, like, I've never done cocaine or heroin and never would, but I've seen bad decision-making by people that do do cocaine or heroin or alcoholics. So it's not just the books. It's also like a lived experience. Um, approached, I think I need to get way better at marketing. Like that is, it's, it's over and over again. It's just like not just enough to make a great product or service. It's like you've got to invent unique ways to distribute that product in a cost-effective manner. Um, so that's one that I'm like, I did almost no marketing up until the beginning of this year where I like, now I'm taking it seriously. Now I'm going on other podcasts. Now I'm like really pushing. Cause I had this idea where it's just like, well, if this is benefiting people's lives, I have a moral obligation to spread that as much as people's as possible. And I'm reading all these books about these creative distribution methods or the importance they put on marketing and you're not applying that. So that's another one. Um, other than that, no, I, I think I've internalized a, my life is definitely better, way better now that I do founders and before I did like I am that's why I'm also making sure I'm not gonna let anybody screw that up because uh, you know you get a ton of opportunities as your podcast grows and right now it's just like let me just focus on this I don't know what the future holds but I really really like my life okay. like right now I'm really very happy the only thing I need to improve is to make more people aware of founders and that's really it and a lot of that is just by constantly being exposed to these stories it's just like I'm gonna enjoy my life I'm not letting anybody be negative. I'm not letting anybody dr uh, drag me down. We have no idea how long we're going to be alive for. And so like part of it is just like the reason I'm willing to give every part of my soul and energy to founders is because I truly love doing it. And work is a, a giant part of your life. And if you don't, if you haven't yet found something that is actually enjoyable that you want to continue doing, that does not mean that it's, you're not going to have difficult parts. Go back to the George Lucas mountain analogy right um i think you just have to keep looking until you do find that um so no I, other than that man I, I i really do think founders has, has improved the stuff i've learned from doing founders has improved my life drastically like i absolutely love there's very little about my life that i would change and that came through the lessons i learned from these people yeah, but that's that's taking lessons theory and like you said, action into practice, right? Going from theory to practice, actually living them. Um, one thing I just loved in, in the few minutes you were talking there is just the amount of focus. And I think it became very obvious how good of a job you're doing on staying focused on what you're doing and blocking out those outside distractions. Uh, I think that's just so important. I just wanted to note that again. One thing as, as we're gonna round up here shortly, I wanna bring up is an entrepreneur uh, that I love and that's Jay-Z. And you just mentioned a few minutes ago, being in control uh, of your mental state and things like that, something Jay-Z does an incredible job of. And I hope you remember the story of when he was with Biggie Smalls at a shoot in Miami. <laughs> Do you remember the story? I would love for you to tell this because this is something I, I wasn't aware of until you made this. I wasn't either. Yeah. I wasn't either. And I'm a huge Jay-Z fan, right? And so this is the importance of like, I don't really care what people say. I watch what they do, right? <laughs> like that's all that matters. So one of my favorite max maxims is actions express priority. And so I've like, Jay-Z has talked about like smoking weed or doing other stuff in, in, his, uh, in his music. And yet he tells very, very early in his career, you know, he's been grinding. He's been hustling forever. I think he's like 26 years old. He's finally released his like what he feels is his best album ever, which is Reasonable Doubt. 
and he's doing the photo shoot. I think they're in Miami, actually. Or not photo shoot, the video shoot in, in Miami. Biggie Smalls is still alive at the time. They're friends. This is before Biggie gets killed, unfortunately. And so he comes down, and Biggie was known for just like love smoking blunts all day long, right? And so, but, but, uh, Jay-Z was raised in like a certain element where he's like, you never get high if you're on supply. He's like, I was a dealer. I wasn't a consumer. And so he thought people that smoked weed, you know, he thought they were like lazy people. Um, so he avoided it. But then Biggie's a good friend of his. He obviously admired his, his, the work he's able to produce. And so Biggie's like, come on, man, just, you know, chill. You know, you're dropping the album. Like you've done the hard work. The album's complete. Smoke this weed with me. And so they start smoking weed together. And once Biggie sees that Jay-Z is really high, he leans over and he goes, I got you. <laughs> Something like that. And Jay-Z's like, oh, look what he did. He got me out of like, basically altered my behavior. So he goes to his room and tries to sober up. And then I forgot what he says when he comes down. Um, but he's just like, I'm never letting that happen again. And what I didn't know is that even when he was selling his alcohol, because Jay-Z's made a lot of money selling alcohol brands, like he would go to a club, right? And promote, he'd, he'd, make, he'd get paid to go to a club and 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 you know, do like four or five songs real quick. So what Jay-Z would do, and this, this speaks to his work ethic and his focus too, in my opinion, he'd show up at the club five minutes before he's supposed to get on, gets on stage, rocks the songs he needs to do. And he's like, all right. And then people are paying because, you know, they're paying like, hey, Jay-Z's going to be here. Does the songs and then gets in the car and leaves, goes home, you know, like complete opposite of what you think. He's like, I'm not hanging on the club. I'm going to make more music or I'm going to, you know, build other businesses or whatever the case is. Like, but he, Jay-Z talks about the importance of not, um, of just not, of, of keeping a clear mind. So he's like, I, you know, I don't, he's like, I'll smoke weed every once in a while. I'll drink every once in a while, but this is not like an everyday thing. It's not like the music that you're hearing um, where, you know, and, and he was early to that because if you look where hip hop went, like, especially the young generation, they're all like pills, drinking lean, you know, and the thing is, is like, is that what you're doing going to, is that, it's not, that impressive you make one great album right there's a ton of people that make one great album what's so impressive about jay-z is like he came in at 26 and knew exactly what he was going to do and now you know he's over 50 he's still doing it he's still capable of doing that where you think of there was probably a thousand peers he had in the early 90s when he came out and how many are still surviving to this day you're talking about like two three like a handful so those kind of people that understand the need for longevity and, and understand developing the skills for survival are interesting people to me that I try to, to study and, and, and I pay attention when they, when they speak. Yeah. And then you bring those lessons to life so well, so clearly. Um, there's been a ton of gems in, in this episode thus far. Obviously we're going to have the founders podcast linked up, everything like that. I, I am curious though, one final one, which biographies have you not read or are there certain people that have been on your radar, but you're just, you're really excited to dive into. You just haven't done it yet. So the the great thing about the podcast is that it attracts a bunch of smart and driven people. Like I just cannot believe some of the people that listen to it and pay to listen to it, which is really wild. Um, and as a result of that, I get book recommendations every single day. So right now I have a queue. I haven't, I, I haven't counted in a, a couple months. Last time I counted, it was over 300 books that have been recommended to me that are on my list. Many of which are bought. <laughs> I wish you could see. I've run out of space. I have no like space at all. I need like a two-story library. I I have a stack of just uh, uh, books recommended to me on the podcast that I bought. I'm looking at it now. They're just literally on the floor. I have no place to put them. There's probably f- 60 books right there. Um, so the way I do it, I pick books. I don't have like a queue, like in an order, right? I just think like when I 
when I was like, once I finish the book I'm working on, which I'll probably be out, I'll probably be done. I'll probably record the podcast sometime this weekend, right? I just pick books on who, I ask myself, who am I most excited about to read, to learn about now? I do it by excitement. You know what I mean? Like, cause like, you're going to know, there's been a bunch of books that I've read, maybe, I don't know, 12 or 15, where I, got, I either finished like, in some cases I finished the whole book. Some I um, got like halfway through and it's like this, I can't do a podcast on this. Um, but I think really focus like where am I most excited about is actually a really simple but profound idea because I think that translates when I go and talk, you know, to, to the listener. Um, so which ones are my most excited about now? would be a good way to think about that is like, what are, what, what do I have coming up soon? Oh my goodness. Okay. So we talked about, (laughs) we talked about earlier, like I was like, I want to read about uh, explorers because they're so crazy people. Like they just have founder mentality, but they don't, they don't, they don't apply their founder mentality to building a company. I found this book through James Dyson, who winds up being friends with the guy and he recommended the book in his second autobiography that I just read. And this is, might be the best title for an autobiography I have ever come across. <laughs> Listen to what this guy named his autobiography. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. <laughs> his name is Ralph Renouf Phoenix or something like that. He's like this crazy Arctic explorer. I think he's still alive to this day. He's written a bunch of books, but I saw that when I, when I, James Dyson, recommended like reading his book, but he didn't mention what the title was. And I go look it up and I saw mad, bad and dangerous to know. I've never hit order faster. I was like that, just off that, that's gotta be crazy. Then there's another book uh, that Paul Graham recommended. And then uh, my friend Frederick, who listens to the podcast, he also writes this fantastic Substack called Necker. I think it's neckervalue.substack. N-E-K-A-R. So he does, if you really think about what Frederick's doing, he does like he studies history's greatest investors and he writes about them. So it's almost like the audio, like the written version of what I'm doing for entrepreneurship. But he told me about this book called More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of a New Elite. And so for Frederick to say, hey, get this book and Paul Graham to say it's fantastic. I mean, Paul Graham's read a bunch, right? Uh, so that's coming up. I have, I'm, I'm going a little crazy. So there's a 200 page biography of Socrates that I'm going to read by this fantastic author named Paul Johnson. I've been ordering all of Paul Johnson's books. I think I'm up to like, I've already read, I think three. I think, yeah, I've read three so far. I read read one on Churchill, read one on Mozart and read one on um, Heroes, which is like, he did a, he profiled people. It's a collection of people in that book, like George Washington, uh, Alexander Graham, Julius Caesar, Abraham Lincoln, all kinds of crazy people. But he, what Paul Johnson has mastered is like how to write a thrilling and informative biography in under 200 pages which I think is a lost, like, no, I haven't found anybody else that's doing that. Um, ben Franklin. Oh my God. I'm read the next book I'm doing after, um, after the book that I, uh, that the, the, the richest, the richest person ever lived. I walked into the bookstore the other day and I found this book. Can't see it. Yeah, I can. It's called Franklin in Washington. And it is about, I didn't even know this. And I've read books on Franklin about his like, extremely long term friendship with George Washington and how the entire, it's a dual biography, right. Of Franklin and Washington. That's focused on their interaction with each other. And I'm obsessed with like these weird, you'll notice in history, a lot of these people knew each other. They're like in the same geographic, like you just have a huge impact. 
where you are and who you associate with has a huge impact on what you're able to accomplish in life, right? And that's been consistent throughout history. And so like, I love the idea of like learning about Rockefeller dealing with Morgan and about Andrew Carnegie uh, partnering up with Henry Kelly Frick, building a gigantic company and then hating each other. And like, I just love, uh, I mentioned Cesar Ritz and August Scafia. I like two formidable individuals interacting with each other. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that. Um, so that's actually the, the book I'm going to, I've already started reading it and I usually don't do that. And like, that's how much I like the book. I'm reading two books at one time, which is not a good idea. Have um, you seen and the, then I, no, no, the show around, around the ty- tycoons, Rockefeller, JP Morgan, Carnegie, all them, um, the men who build America. I, I watched, yeah, I think I watched it. Somebody, a listener told me about that and I, it was a long time ago, but I watched a few episodes, yeah. Yeah, I think it came out like 15 years ago. Um, that was a pretty yeah. interesting portrayal around behind the scenes. Um, yeah, no, no you, you were about to say something before I uh, jumped in there. Um, I'm going to read the book about uh, gold, the, the founding of Goldman Sachs, which I think, again, I'm, a, I'm really obsessed with people that do things for a really long time. And in the case of Goldman Sachs, like that, that company's been around for what, like 150 years or something like that? Um, actually Patrick O'Sonaghy from invest like the best. He has this other podcast called business breakdowns and I haven't listened to it yet. I just found it. Um, it's, it's a, he just did a, a, an episode on Goldman Sachs and listen to the title. It says Goldman Sachs fortune favors the old. Um, I was like, Oh, I just, just off that, that, uh, title alone. I was like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta listen to that. So I have that coming up. Um, what else? I mean, I can go on and on. There's like, I have a list on my computer um, of other people. But I think those are like the ones I'm really most interested in right now. But again, if you ask me that question two weeks from now, it's, I'm going to answer it differently. It just really is. I don't, I don't want to plan. Like, I don't want to have like an agenda, right? Um, so it's just whenever I finish the next book, I'll be like, okay, look at the list. Uh, what are you most excited about? And I'm also excited about weird books that I know part of the, the main lesson of uh, founders is the importance to have a differentiated product, right? Um, so few people focus on that and it's really worth thinking a lot about at the very beginning and then continuing to figure out how to differentiate your product as much as possible. And one thing uh, I was reading Rockefeller's biography and Mark Twain winds up being best friends with one of Rockefeller's partners named Henry Rogers. Okay. And he, Mark Twain's obviously a very gifted writer. And he said something about, he's like, Rogers is my favorite person in the world because he's a pirate. He goes, he's a pirate, but he knows he's a pirate and he admits he's a pirate. Hmm. And he's just like this crazy guy. There's a story in Titan where back then they just had, they really believed that they can, they can control their entire, like they could just change the world. And so uh, Henry Rogers winds up making a ton of money from Standard Oil, obviously. Hmm. But then he like takes over, he almost like <laughs> makes himself like the king of Staten Island. Where like he's controlling like the government in Staten Island, all the 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 physical infrastructure. He's just like there's no limit to these people's ambitions, and they're just so crazy. And even to the point like he's like, oh, I like Mark Twain's writing. I'm gonna wind up being friends with them. So then they he's like, I could just do that. And then he winds up saving Mark Twain from bankruptcy. Mark Twain almost gave away, signed away the rights to all his books, right? And and he's like, Rogers made sure I didn't do that, and he saved my family from ever like uh from ever going hungry. You know, but the, 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 so anyways, maybe research, I have a book sitting on the floor over there. It's like 150 years old, something like that. It's all the correspondence between Mark Twain and Henry Rogers. Hmm. 
And it's just like, I'm pretty sure there's, once I do that episode and it's like 800 pages, so that's going to take a hell of a long time. But I'm pretty sure once that's out, I don't think there's going to be another podcast in the world <laughs> that has done an episode that'll read 800 pages of letters going between Mark Twain and Henry Rogers. Um, so I also try to optimize for that. Like I like some, some popular books like Shoe Dog and Steve Jobs by Isaacson. Those are fantastic books. But I also try to find some weird stuff like um, there's a book that's really hard to find in the, in my back catalog called the invisible billionaire. And it's about Daniel Ludwig. I think it's episode 66, some, somewhere in there. And that book, no one even knew, like he was at, at, at the point, maybe one of the richest people in the world and didn't, no one knew he existed. And he made a lot of money in, in shipping and, and oil. His competitors were like the Onassis and all the Greeks. They went out and courted, you know, Onassis winds up marrying Jack, uh, JFK's widow He's like super famous and giving all these interviews. Daniel Ludwig is his competitor, but he's completely silent. He doesn't want, like, he's not interested in fame. All he wants to do is obsess with his business. Um, and so I love finding those like little hidden gems. And then you realize like this guy built a three or $4 billion fortune in like the seventies and eighties and no one knew who he was. And yet his approach to work is completely logical and rational. And you could apply it to whatever it is you're doing like that. That just makes me excited. I don't know how many people even knew who Daniel Ludwig was much less read his biography, and then made a podcast about it. David, there's been so much wisdom to unpack in this episode. This, is, this has been remarkable. Two things really stand out for me. Um, what you were hitting on there about following your interests, following your true curiosities, and then the amount of focus that's required and how that becomes a superpower. Uh, of course, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to be fired up to, to read some of these books. I'm going to have the podcast linked up. Is there anywhere else you want people going, anywhere we can direct them just to stay connected with you? Just the podcast. I mean, I put out so much content. I think there's like 400 hours. <laughs> I haven't counted. Somebody told me. I got to go back and count. I should know this, actually. But um, no, I think the best, if you really want to learn more and you're interested in entrepreneurship, you might as well, st like, there's a great saying that Steve Jobs, so there's a, there's a book called In the Company of Giants, right? And it's written by two Stanford MBA students in the 1990s. I think it's episode 208 or 204 found or something like that. But there was a line by Steve Jobs that's fantastic. Because Steve Jobs was like, why are you writing this book? And in the book, the Stanford, uh, the Stanford students got this idea. It's like, we're sitting in Silicon Valley. Let's go and interview. I think they interviewed 16 technology company founders. And Steve hears about why they're doing this. And he said, he goes, oh, that's smart. He goes, if you're at Heaven's Gate, you might as well uh, poke your head in and take a peek. And so that's the way I think about founders. Like if you're really interested in entrepreneurship or doing anything difficult, it's not like I have entrepreneurs listening, investors listening. I have surgeons, truck drivers, college students, stay-at-home moms, attorneys, people digging ditches. This is not an exaggeration. I hear from like originally when I thought, when I started the podcast, I thought it was only going to be entrepreneurs and investors. And you realize these lessons are applicable to all kinds of people. Um, so the way I would say is like the only way I, where I would point you is just point you to the podcast because it's a way to peek into heaven's gates. David, I'm going to have everything linked up for every one of the show notes here. Uh, so you guys can check that out. What got you there.com. But I can't thank you enough for joining us here. Uh, I'm going to continue to learn from you, the work you put out. Uh, but once again, I just need to thank you for the incredible work you do, the ability to focus on your craft and the level of quality you bring to it. So thanks again, man. Yeah, no problem, man. Hopefully we do this again soon. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. 
If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Ode. 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 Ode.